The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 5 of The Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter 5 At the Garden Gate. Inch by inch, the gate edged open. Warily, he presented himself. The furtive crack gave him an instant's glimpse of a dark form within the shadows. Then, in his face, it closed. Ryder waited. In a moment it was opened wider, and he saw the dark-shrouded head and the veiled face of the Turkish girl, and out from the blackness the sparkle of young eyes. "'Is it? But who is it?' whispered a doubtful voice, and at his, "'Why, it is I, the American!' Quickly drawing off his cap, a little hand darted out of the darkness to pluck him swiftly within and the door was closed to within an inch of its opening. Then the black phantom, drawing him back among the shrubbery against the wall, turned with a muffled note of laughter. But the costume! Imagine that I— I was looking again for a Scottish chieftain, with red kilts and a feather in his cap. And instead— Ryder looked down at his tweeds with humorous recognition of his change of figure. Then his eyes returned to her. But you are the same, he murmured. She was indeed the same, the same black street mantle down to her very brows, the same black veil up to her very eyes, and the eyes, their soft mysterious loveliness, the little winged tilt of the brows. Apparently their effect was disconcertingly the same. He was conscious of a feeling that was far from a normal calm. "'So you were all right?' he half-whispered. "'Those steps, last night, you know, made me horribly afraid for you. But yes, I am all right.' As excitement gained upon him, a constraint was falling upon her. They were both remembering that moment, overlooked in the rush of recognition, when they had parted in this place, when he had had the temerity to clasp and kiss her. Ami was standing rigid and wary, ready for flight at the first fear. She told herself that she had only come through pride, the pride that insisted upon humbling his presumption. She would let him see how bitterly he had offended. She had only come for this, she told herself and to see if he had come. If he had not come, that would have dealt a sorely humiliating blow. But he was here, and reassured and haughty, repeating that she was mortally offended, her spirit alternating between pride and shame and a delicious fear. She stood there in the shrubbery, fascinated, like a wild, shy thing of another age. That was old Miriam, she explained constrainedly. My father had come in with unexpectedness. "'Lord, it was lucky you were back,' 
"'Yes, it was lucky,' she assented. "'If it had been half an hour before—' She broke off. There came to the young man a sobering perception of the risks she ran, of the supreme folly of this escapade to which they were entrusting themselves. It was a realization that deserved some consideration, but obstinately, with young carelessness, he shook it off. After all, this was comparatively safe for her. She was not out of bounds. At an alarm he could slip away, and no one could ever know. What risk there might be was chiefly his own. "'When you asked me who it was,' he murmured, "'it occurred to me that you did not know my name, nor I yours. "'My own,' he added, as she stood unresponsive, "'is Ryder, Jack Ryder. "'You can always get a letter to me at the Agricultural Bank. "'That is the quickest way. "'My friend, McLean there, always knows where my diggings are. "'When in Cairo I stop with him, or at the Rosmore House.' "'I shall not need to get a letter to you, monsieur,' she told him stiffly. "'But, if you did—' How would you sign it? Amy, that is French, after my mother. Amy, that means beloved, doesn't it? She was silent. Surely, she thought with a swelling heart, if he were sorry he would tell her now. It was the moment for contrition, for appeasement, for whatever explanation his American ways might have. She had thought about him all night. She had given his declaration a hundred forms, but always it had been a declaration. Now she waited, flagellating her sensitive pride. Ryder was conscious of the constraint tightening about them, and in the dragging pause an uncomfortable common sense had time to put its disconcerting questions. What did it matter what her name meant? What in the world was he doing here? And what did she think she was doing here? Not that he wanted her to go. And suddenly it didn't matter, whatever they thought. It was enough that they were together in that still, soft, jasmine-scented dark. He was breathing quickly, his pulses were beating, he had a feeling of strange, heady delight. The crescent moon was up at last, sailing clear of the housetops, sending its bright rays through the filigree of tall shrubs. A finger of light edged the contour of her shrouded head. He bent a little closer. "'Won't you?' he said softly. "'Take your veil off for me?' Appalled, she clasped it to her. He had no idea in the world of the shock of that request. It would be only a faint parallel of its impropriety to suggest to Jinny Jeffreys that she discard her frock. Even Ryder's acquaintance with Egypt could not tell him how that swift, confident eagerness of his could startle an affront. "'I want to see you so very much,' he was murmuring, and met the chill disdain of her retort. "'But it is not for you to see my face, monsieur.' "'Who is to see it?' he demanded. "'Who but the man I am to marry?' she gave distinctly back. The word hit him like stone. He was conscious of a shock. Did she intend to rebuke, or to imply, to question his intention? The steadiness of her low voice suggested a certain steadiness of design. He had heard of girls who knew their own minds, girls with unexpectedly far-sighted vision. Perhaps, poor child, she looked upon him as romantic escape from all that was restrictive in her life. Secluded women go fast when they start. The devil take him for that kiss. A somewhat set look upon his thin face guarded the fluctuations of his soul, but the blood rose strongly under his dark skin. For a moment he did not venture upon a reply, and in that moment he was suddenly aware that she had caught his meaning from him, and that it was a horrible mistake. It was one of those instants of highly charged exchanges of meanings whose revelation was as useless to be denied as powerless to be explained. 
Then her words came in tumultuous, passionate refutation of his thought. That is what my father had come to tell me, that he had arranged my marriage. It is a very splendid thing. To a general, a rich general. She had not meant to tell him like that, but for the moment she was savagely glad to hurl it at him. He made no answer. His eyes were inscrutably intent. A variety of things were rearranging themselves in his head. You're, you're going to marry him? he said slowly. What else? But she felt the phrase unfortunate and plunged past it. It is not for me to say no, monsieur. It is for my father to arrange. But his indulgence! You were telling me, you know, that he was so fond of you, that you were one of the moderns, the revolting moderns. Jack Ryder's tone was questioningly cynical, and its raillery cut through her brief sham of pride. So I thought, too, last night. A tinge of infinite disillusionment was in her young voice. But it is not so. Then you accept? The shrouded head nodded. But you can't want to, he broke out with sudden heat. You don't know him at all, do you, this general? Know him? I have never seen his face nor heard his voice. And I would die first, she added with bitter, helpless fierceness under her breath. The veil muffled that from him. But why? Why? he repeated in an angrily puzzled way. She made a little gesture of weary impotence. Out of the dark draperies her hands were like white fluttering butterflies. What can I do? I should think you could do the old Harry of a lot. Weep, said the girl, with a pale irony not lost upon him. Weep or row, or run, he added almost reluctantly. She turned away her head. I know, I thought once that I could run. For that I stole the key to this gate. But where would I run, monsieur? I have neither friends nor, nor the resources. There have been girls, two sisters, who ran away last year, but they were already married and they had cousins in France. For me, my cousins do not exist. I do not know my mother's family. They disowned her for her marriage, my father says. And so, but it is not possible to evade this. It is not possible. This marriage is required required rot can't you don't you he paused looking down upon her in tremendous and serious uncertainty the impulse was strong upon him to tell her that he would help her the accents of her voice had seemed to tear at his very heart it was utter madness where in the map of africa would he hide her and how would he take care of her what would he do to her make love to her marry her take home a wife from an egyptian harem a surprising acquisition with which to startle and enchant his decorous family in East Middleton? And a pretty end to his work here, his reputation, his responsibilities. It was madness, and the fact that the thought had presented itself, even for his flouting mockery, indicated that he was mad. He told himself to be careful. Better men than he had everlastingly done for themselves, because upon a night of stars and moonshine some dark-eyed girl had played the very devil with their common sense. He reminded himself that he had never set eyes on her until last night, that she might be the consummate perfection of a minx, that there might not be a word of truth in all of this. This general now, sudden, not a word about it last night, and now? He had an inkling that even Mohammedan fathers do not rush matters at such a pace. For all he knew the girl might be inventing this general, for some artless reasons of her own. For all he knew she might be married to him and desirous of escape but he didn't believe it. She was too young and shy and virginal. The accents of her candor rebuked his skepticism. 
he merely told himself these things because the last vestige of his expiring common sense was prompting him and after all these credible and excellent exhortations to the utter extinction of the last vestige of that common sense he heard himself saying abruptly but isn't there anything in the world that i can do nothing monsieur but for you to submit like this it is not to be helped but it is to be helped if you really dislike it he added jealously i cannot help it because because my father she hesitated the honour of her father and her family pride and affection were all involved yet suddenly the sacrifice of these became more tolerable than to consent to that image of herself which she saw swiftly defining itself in his mind that slight weak creature whose acquiescent passivity submitted to this marriage the thought was unbearable she was burning beneath her veil she would tell him and perhaps she was not averse in her childish pride to the pitiful glory of having him see her in the beauty of her filial sacrifice my father has has done something against the english laws she faltered and hamdi bey this general knows of it and will inform unless unless my father makes this marriage a cousin of his has seen me she added her young vanity forlornly rearing its head and told hamdi that i am not not too ill-looking a girl her essay of a laugh died Ryder's look deepened in its sharp defensive concentration this is true i mean your father is not just putting something over telling you to get your consent her thoughts flew back to her father's haggard face oh it is true i know and he's going to hand you over what sort is this hamdi a general old evil enough to lay traps to obtain me it's abomination the anger in the young man surged beyond his control you must not do it if your father is clever enough to break a law let him be clever enough to mend it by himself such a sacrifice is not required you must realize what this means to you you must realize look here i'll help you i'll plan some escape there must be ways i have friends she stifled the leap of her heart she held her head high and made what she thought was a very noble little speech it is for my father monsieur you do not understand it is to save my father he looked at her in silence he was afraid to answer for a moment he could feel the unruly blood beating even in the lips he pressed together but you don't understand he blurted at last and broke off after all he did not know this girl if he swayed her judgment now and dragged her away what life what compensation could he offer her how did he know that she would not regret it would she be happier in a world unknown she had been brought up to this sort of thing it was bred in her marriage was her inevitable game this very charm she exercised this subtle haunting invasion of his senses what was that but another proof of the harem existence where all influences were forced to serve the ends of sex and she was so maddeningly resigned to take this general a queer hot rage was gaining possession of him oh well if you prefer this he said brutally with a youthful desire to wreak pain in return for that strange pain which something was inflicting upon him a girl who would let him kiss her one night and on the next inform him that she was giving herself to an unknown an old turk if she could go like that to some other's arms and lips he wanted to take her fiercely in his arms and crush her lips against his and then fling her away and say oh go to him now if you can 
and at the same time he wanted to gather her to him as tenderly as if she were a flower he was guarding, and tell her that he would protect her against all the world. He was divided and confused and blindly angry. He felt baffled and frustrated. He was both aching and raging, and yet he was capable of reminding himself, in some corner of his uninvaded mind, that this was undoubtedly the best thing for them both. What else? For him, for her. And yet his tongue went on stabbing her. If this is what you are determined to do, he heard himself saying hardly, yet with a hint of deferred finality. It was as if he had said, If this, then, is what you are like, if you are the soft, submissive harem creature, the toy, the odalesque, if you will endure undesired love rather than face the world. And she knew that was what he was saying to her. The injustice brought a lump of self-pity to her throbbing throat, that he should not realize and honor the courage of her sacrifice, that he should reproach, despise. She had expected other entreaties, protestations. Her heart ached with a throb of steady dreariness. But she did not stir. Not a line of her drooping draperies wavered towards him, and swallowing that lump in her throat, she achieved a toneless, that is what I am going to do. At the other end of the garden a sound came from the house. Ryder seemed to rouse himself. Good-bye, then, he said uncertainly. Good-bye, monsieur. He looked oddly at her. Good-bye, he muttered again, and turned, and stumbled out of the gate. A pool of moonlight lay without its arches, and he stepped into it as if coming out of the shadows of an enchanted garden. He stood and straightened himself as if throwing off that garden spell. He put back his shoulders and took a quick step down the lane. A slight sound drew his eyes back. She had followed him to the gate. She stood there in the moonlight, against the inky wells of shadow into which her black robe flowed, and in the moonlight her face, gazing after him, was an exquisite ethereal apparition, like a spirit of the garden. She had cast off her veil. He had a vision of her dark eyes shining over rose-flushed cheeks, of deeper rose-red lips and curves of haunting sweetness, of the tender contour of her young face, fixed unforgettingly in the radiant moonlight. Only an instant's vision, for while the blood stopped in his veins, the darkness engulfed her like a magician's curtain. But he waited while he heard the gate closed. Still he waited while he heard her locking it. And then, for all his hot young pride, he turned back and knocked upon it. He called softly. He whispered entreaties. Not a sound, not an answer. In a revulsion of feeling he turned and made his way blindly from the lane. She had heard his voice. Like a creature utterly spent, she had been leaning against the great gate from which she had withdrawn the key but she uttered not a breath in answer, and after she had heard his footsteps die away, she turned slowly back and groped among the rose-roots for the key's hiding-place. Mechanically she smoothed it over and moved on towards the house. All was quiet there. That sound had been no alarm. Unobserved she slipped within the little door and up the spiral steps. She had not seen the dark eyes that were watching her from the other side of the rose-thicket. After the girl had gained the house, the old woman came forward and stooped before the marked bush, muttering under her breath at the thorns. After a few moments she gave a little grunt of satisfaction, and her exploring hand drew out the key. Smoothing again the rifled hiding-place among the roses, she made her careful way into the house. End of chapter 5
Chapter Six of the Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter Six: A Secret of the Sands. The siesta was past. The sun was tilting towards the west, and shadows were beginning to jut out across the blazing sands. Over the mounds of rubbish the bearers had resumed their slow procession, a picturesque fraise of tattered, indigo-robed, ebony figures, baskets on heads, against the cloudless cobalt sky, and again the hot air was invaded with the monotonous rise and fall of their labor chant. A man with a short, pointed red beard and an academic face beneath a pith-helmet was stooping over the siftings from those baskets, intent upon the stream of sand through the wire screens. Patiently he discarded the unending pebbles, discovering at rare intervals some lost bead, some splinter of old sycamore wood, some fragment of pottery in which a Ptolemy had sipped his wine, or a kitchen wench had soaked her lentils. Beyond the man were traces of the native camp, a burnt-out fire, a roll of rags, a tattered shelter-cloth stuck on two tottering sticks, and distributed indiscriminately were a tethered goat, a white donkey with motionless drooping ears, and a few supercilious camels. The camp was in the centre of a broken line of foothills on the desert's edge. North and south and west the wide sands swept out to meet the sky, and to the east, shutting out the Nile Valley, the hills reared their red rock from the yellow drift. Among the jutting rock in the foreground yawned dark mouths that were the entrances of the discovered tombs, and within one of these tombs was another white man, he was conducting his own siftings in high solitude, a lean, bronzed young man with dark hair and eyes, and, at the present moment, an unexhilarated expression. It had been two weeks since Jack Ryder had returned to camp, two interminable weeks. They were the longest, the dullest, the dreariest, the most irritatingly undelighting weeks that he had ever lived through. But bitterly he resented any aspersion from the long-suffering Thatcher upon his disposition. He wanted it distinctly understood that he was not low-spirited, not in the least. A man wasn't in the dumps just because he wasn't, well, garrulous, just because he didn't go about whistling like a steam siren or exult like a cheerleader when someone dug up the effigy of a Hathor cow, just because he objected when the natives twanged their fool strings all night and wailed at the moon. The moon was full now. Round and white it went sailing blandly over the eternal monotony of desert. Round and white it lighted up the eternal sameness of life. He had never noticed it before, but a moon was a poignantly depressing phenomenon. He couldn't help it. A man couldn't make himself be a comedian. It wasn't as if he wanted to be a grump. He would have been glad to be glad. He wanted Thatcher to make him glad. He defied him to. He didn't enjoy this flat, insipid taste of things, this dull grind, this feeling of sameness and dullness that made nothing seem worth while a feeling that he had been marooned on a desert island, far from all stir and throb of life. Suppose he did dig up a Hather cow. Suppose he dug up Hather herself, or Cleopatra, or ten little Ptolemies. What was the good of it? Not Jinny Jeffreys herself could have cast more aspersions upon the personal value of excavations. When he was tired of denying to himself that there was anything unusual the matter with him, he shifted the inner argument, 
and took up the denial that anything which had happened in Cairo those two weeks before had anything to do with it. As if that rash encounter mattered. As if he were the silly, senseless, sentimental sort of idiot to go mooning about his work because of a girl, and a girl from a harem with a taste for secret masquerades and Turkish marriages. As if he cared. Of course, he admitted this logically and coldly now to himself, as he sat there in the ray of his excavator's lantern on the sanded floor at the end of the hall of offerings. Of course, he was sorry for the girl. It was no life for any young girl, especially a spirited one, with her veins bubbling with French blood. The system was wrong. If they were going to shut up those girls, they had no business to bring them up on modern ideas. If they kept the mashrubia on the windows and the yasmuk on their faces, they ought to keep the coal on their eyes and the henna on their fingers and education out of their hidden heads. It was too bad. But, of course, they were brought up to it. Look how quickly that girl had given in. She was Turkish, through and through, submissive, docile, and a darn good thing she was, too. Suppose she had taken him at his full word. Suppose she had really wanted to get away. Lucky, that's what he'd been. And it would be a lesson to him. Never again. No more masked young things with their stolen keys and their harem entrances. No more whispered tales of woe in a shady garden. No more. Violently he wrenched himself from his no mores. Recollection had a way of stirring up an unpleasant tumult. But it was all over. He had forgotten it. He would forget it. He would forget her. Work, that was the thing. Normal, sensible, everyday work. But there was no joy in this tonic work. Somewhere, between a night and a morning, he had lost that glow of accomplishment which had buoyed him, which had made him fairly ecstatic over the discovery of this very tomb. For this tomb was his own find. It had been found long before by the plundering Persians, and it had been found by Arabs who had plundered the Persian remains. But between and after those findings, the oblivious sands had swept over it, blotting it from the world, choking the entrance hall and the shafts, seeping through half-sealed entrances, and packing its dry drift over the rifled sarcophagus of the king and over the withered mummy of the young girl in the anteroom. The tombs had been cleared now, down almost to the stone floors, and Ryder was busy with the drifts that had lodged in the crevices about the entrance to the shaft. It was really an important find. Although much plundered, the walls were intact, and the delicate carvings in the white limestone walls were exceptional examples. And there were some very interesting things to decipher. A scholar and an explorer could well be enthusiastic. But Ryder continued to look far from enthusiastic, even when his groping fingers, searching a cranny, came in contact with a hard substance, his face did not change to any lightning radiance. Unexpectedly, he picked up the sand-encrusted lump and brushed it off. A gleam of gold shone in his hand. But it was no ancient amulet or necklace or breast guard, nor was it any bit of the harness of the plundering Persians. It was a locket, very heavily and ornately carved. He stood a moment, staring down at the thing, with a curious feeling of having stood staring down at exactly the same thing before, that subconscious feeling of the repetition of events which supports the theories of reincarnationists, and then, quite suddenly, memory came to his aid. In McLean's office, that day of the masquerade, those visiting Frenchmen and that locket they had shown him, of course the thing reminded him, and it was remarkably alike, the same thick oval, the same ponderous effect of the coat of arms, 
If it should prove the same coat of arms, that would be a clue. With his mind still piecing the recollection and surmise together, his fingers pressed the spring. There was a miniature within, but it was not the picture of Monsieur Delcasse. Ryder was looking down upon the face of a girl, a beautiful, spirited face, with merry eyes and wistful lips, dark eyes, with a lovely arch of brow, and rose-red lips with haunting curves. And eyes and brows and lips and curves, it was the face of the girl who had gazed after him in the moonlight, against the shadows of the Pasha's garden. End of chapter 6「looking up from his scrutiny of the packet which his unexpected luncheon guest had pushed over to his plate. Uncommon thoughtful. It is undoubtedly a twin to that locket, the portrait of the man's wife, whatever his name was. Delcasse, said Jack Ryder promptly. Gratefully he drained the second lemon squash which the silent-footed Mohammed had placed at his elbow. It had been a hard morning's trip, this coming in from camp in high haste, and he was hot and dusty. You might have sent the thing. McLean mentioned. I dare say that special agent chap has left the country, for I recollect he said he was at the end of his search. And, of course, this isn't much of a clue, eh, what? It's everything of a clue, insisted Ryder. It shows where this Frenchman was working for the first thing. Unless it had been stolen by some native who lost it in the tomb. Natives don't lose gold lockets. Of course, it might have been stolen and hidden, but that's far-fetched. It's much more likely that this was the very tomb where Delcasse was working at the time of his death. For one thing, the place showed signs of previous excavation up to the inner corridor, and there, I'll swear, no modern got ahead of me. And for another thing, it's a perfect specimen of the limestone carving of the tomb of Tai, which Delcasse wrote in his book about. Looks very much as if it might be by the same artist. There's a flock of hippopotami in a marsh scene with the identical drawing, and there's the same lovely boat in full sail. But there, you bounder, you don't know the tomb of Ty from a thyroid gland. You're here to administer financial justice, the middle, the high, and the low. Your soul is with piasters, not the past. But take my word for it, it's exactly the spot where an enthusiast of the Ty tomb would be grubbing away. Lord, they could choose their find in those days. It's uncommonly likely, McLean conceded, abandoning his demolished cherry tart and pulling out his briar. And if the locket proves the duplicate of the other— it indicates that it's a portrait of Madame Delcasse, but it doesn't indicate what has become of Madame Delcasse. Though in a general way, McLean deduced with Scotch judicialness, it supports the theory of foul play. The woman would hardly have lost her miniature or have sold it. Except under pressing conditions, in fact. Ryder was brusque with his facts. That doesn't matter. Madame Delcasse doesn't matter. The thing that matters is... As brusquely he broke off. His tongue balked before the revelation, but he goaded it on. That there is a girl, the living image of that picture. I say! McLean looked up at that, distinctly intrigued. That's getting on. You mean you've seen her? Ryder nodded, suddenly busy with his cigarette. Where is she now? In Cairo? 
That's luck, man. And you say she's like? You'd think it her picture. It's an uncommon face. McLean bent over it again. I fancied the artist had just been making a bit of beauty. But if there's a girl like that, fancy stumbling on that. But where is she? And what name does she go by? Oh, her name. She doesn't know her own, of course. Ryder paused uncertainly. She's in Cairo, he began again vaguely. She'd be just about the right age, eighteen or so. She—she's had awfully hard luck. Distressfully, he hesitated. The shrewd eyes of McLean dwelt upon him in sorrowful silence. "'Eh, hey, joke,' he said at last, with mock scandal, scarcely veiling rebuke. "'I did not know that you knew any of that sort, the poor wee lost thing. Tell me no.' "'Tell you you're off your chump,' said Jack rudely. "'She's no lost lamb. Fact is, she's never spoken to a man, except myself.' He rather enjoyed the start this gave McLean after his insinuations. It helped him on with his story. "'The girl doesn't know her own name at all, I gather. She thinks she's the daughter of Tufik Pasha. Her mother married the Turk and died very soon afterwards, and he brought up this girl as his own. She says she's his only child.' He paused, ostensibly to blow an elaborate smoke-ring, but actually to enjoy McLean's astonishment. As astonishment it was distinctly vivid. It verged upon a genuine horror as Ryder's meaning sank into his friend's mind. McLean knew, slightly, Tufik Pasha. He knew, supremely, the inviolable seclusion of a daughter of such a household. He knew the utter impossibility of any man's speech with her. Yet here was Ryder telling him. Ryder's telling him was a sketchy performance. He mentioned the girl's appearance at the masquerade and their acquaintance. He touched lightly upon her attempted flight in his pursuit. Even more lightly he passed over those lingering moments at her garden gate, and the exchange of confidences. She said that her dead mother had been French, and that her name was her mother's name, Amy. So there is— But the likeness, man, her face, she never unveiled to you. Well, the next night— The next night? It was at this point that Ryder began to lose his relish of McLean's astonishment. Yes, the next night, he repeated with careful carelessness. I told the girl I would come and see if she got in all right. There had been some footsteps the night before. "'And you went? And she came? Do you suppose she sent her father?' "'You're lucky she didn't send her father's eunuch,' McLean retorted grimly. "'Well, get on with your damn story. The girl took off her veil?' "'Nothing of the kind,' said Jack, a trifle testily. "'So soon does conventional masculinity champion the conservatism of the other sex. That was just as I was going—gone, in fact—' I looked back, and she had drawn her veil aside. The moon was bright on her face. I saw her as clear as daylight, and I tell you that this miniature is a picture of her. She is Delcasse's daughter, and she doesn't know it. Her mother was stolen by that disgusting old Turk. Hold on a bit. Fifteen years ago, Tufik could hardly have been thirty, and he has the rep of a Don Juan. It may have been a love affair, or it may have been plunder. The girl remembers her? Very little. She was so young when her mother died. She said that her father was so in love that he never married again. Hm. It seems to me that I've heard tales of our Tufik and of pretty ladies in apartments. Cairo is a city of secrets and tattlers. However, as to this Delcasse inheritance, I'll just notify the French legation. We'll have to look sharp, said Ryder quickly. There's no time to lose. The girl is to be married. Married? But she'll inherit the money just the same. 
but she doesn't want to be married ryder insisted anxiously her father her alleged father has just sprung this on her says there are political or financial reasons he's been caught in some dirty work by this hamdi bay and he's stopping hamdi's mouth with the girl and we've got to stop that i wonder if we can said mclean thoughtfully if we can when the girl is french when she's been lied to and deceived she seems to have been taken jolly well care of brought up as his own and all that keep your shirt on jack mclean advised dryly with a shrewd glance from his grey eyes at the other's unguarded heat then his eyes dropped to the miniature again a lovely face a lovely unfortunate creature and if the daughter looked like that small wonder that jack was touched beauty in distress some men had all the luck mclean reflected he had never taken jack for the gallivanting kind either yet here he was going to masquerades with one girl and coming home with another jack was too good-looking that was the trouble with the youngster good-looking and gay-humoured the kind that attracted women women and romance were never fluttering about the lank light-eyed uninteresting old scotchman of twenty-nine a mild and wistful pang which mclean refused to name made itself known i'll see the legation he began at once i'll wait urged ryder and at once mclean went the result was what he had foreseen the legation was appreciative of his interest that special agent had returned to france but his address was left and undoubtedly the family of delcasse would be grateful for any information which monsieur mclean could send send repudiated ryder hotly write to france and back wait for somebody to come over can't the legation do something now the legation has no authority they can't take the girl away from the man who is at any rate her stepfather they can put the fear of god into him about this marriage they can deny his right to hand her over to one of his pals they can threaten him with an inquiry into the circumstances of her mother's marriage and why should they they may regard it as a very natural marriage and remember my dear jack that the legation has no desire to alienate the affections of influential turks or criticize fifteen years ago romances you have a totally wrong impression of the responsibilities of foreign representatives but to let him dispose of a french girl he is disposing of her as his daughter in honourable marriage to a wealthy and aristocratic general there can be no question of his motives of course if you think that sort of thing is all right carefully mclean ignored the other's wrath patiently he explained it's not what i think my dear fellow it's what the legation thinks there's not a chance in the world of getting the marriage stopped then i'll do it myself declared ryder i'll see this tufik pasha and talk to him tell him the money is to come to the girl only when she is single tell him the french law gives the father's representatives full charge tell him that he kidnapped the mother and the government will prosecute unless the girl is given her liberty tell him anything a man with a guilty conscience can always be bluffed in silence mclean gazed upon him perplexed and clouded his quizzical twinkle gone jack was taking this thing infernally to heart and it was a bad business you will let me do the tellin he stated at last grimly what can be said i'll say like a fool i will meddle and so it happened that within another hour two very stiff and constrained young men were ringing the bell at the entrance door of tufik pasha end of chapter seven chapter eight of the fortieth door this is a librivox recording 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter 8 Tufik Receives. A huge Sudanese admitted them. They found themselves in a tiled vestibule, looking through open arches into the green of a garden. That garden, Ryder hardly needed to remind himself, with whose back door he had made such unconventional acquaintance. Now he had a glimpse of a sunny fountain and fluttering pigeons, and, on either side of the garden, of the two wings of the building, gay white walls with green shutters, more suggestive of a French villa than an Egyptian palace, before the Sudanese marshalled them toward the stairs upon the right. The left, then, was the way to the haremlik, and somewhere in those secluded rooms, to which no man but the owner of the palace ever gained admission, was Ami. The Sudanese mounted the stairs before them, and held open a door into a long drawing-room, from which the pasha's modernity had stripped every charm except the colour of some worn old rugs. The windows were draped in European style, the walls exhibited paper instead of panelling. In one corner was a victrola, and in another, beside a lounge-chair, stood a table littered with cigarette-trays and French novels with explicit titles. The only Egyptian touch to the place was four enormous oil-portraits of pompous turbaned gentlemen, in one of which Ryder recognized the familiar rotundity of Mahomet Ali in his grand robes. As a pasha's palace it was a blow, and Ryder's vague romantic notions of high walls and gilded arches suffered a collapse. Tufik Pasha came in with haste. He had been going out when these callers were announced, and he was dressed for parade, in a very light, very tight suit, gardenia in his buttonhole, cane in his gloved hands, fez upon his head. For all their smiling welcome, his full dark eyes were uneasy. He had grown distrustful of surprises. It was McLean's affair to reassure him. Far from fulminating any accusations, the canny Scot announced himself as the bearer of glad tidings. A fortune, he announced, was coming to the Pasha, or to the Pasha's family. A very rich old woman in France had decided to change her will. There he paused, and the Pasha continued to smile noncommittally, but the word fortune was operating. In the back of his mind he was hastily trying to think of rich old women in France who might change their wills. "'I am afraid that it's my stupidity which has kept you from the knowledge of this for some weeks,' McLean went on. I had so many other matters to look up, that I did not at once consult my records. It has been so many years since you married Madame Delcasse, that the name had slipped general recollection. It was twelve years ago, I believe, that she died. Casually he waited, and Jack Ryder held his breath. He felt the full suspense of a pause long enough for the Pasha's thoughts to dart down several avenues and back. If the man should deny it, but why should he? What harm in the admission, after all these years, with Madame Delcasse dead and buried, and with a fortune involved in the admission? The Turk bowed, and Ryder breathed again. Ten years, said Tufik softly. Ah, ten! But there has been no communication with France for twelve years or even longer? Possibly not, monsieur. This old aunt, pursued McLean, was a person of prejudice as well as fortune. Hence it has taken a little time for her to adjust herself. He paused and looked understandingly at the Turk, who nodded amiably as one whose comprehension met him more than half-way. My own aunt 
was of similar obstinacy, he murmured. He added, This fortune you speak of, it comes through my wife. For her inheritors, Madame Delcasse, the former Madame Delcasse, I should say, left but one daughter. Again the pasha bowed, and again Ryder felt the throb of triumph. He looked upon his friend with admiration. How marvellously McLean had worked the miracle! No accusations, no threats, no obstacles, no blank walls of denial. Not a ruffle of discord in the establishment of these salient facts, the marriage of Madame Delcasse to the pasha, and the existence of the daughter. Wonderful man, McLean! He had never half appreciated him. But the pasha was not wholly the simple assenter. "'Do I understand?' he inquired that there is a fortune coming from France for my daughter. And at McLean's confirmation, And when you say fortune, he continued, you intend to say, and his glance now took in the silent American, considering that some cue must be his. But McLean responded, The figures are not to be divulged, not until the aunt is in communication with her niece. But they will be large, monsieur, for this aunt is a person of great wealth. "'And yet alive to enjoy it,' said Tufik with smiling eyes. "'An aged and dying woman,' thrust in Ryder in haste. "'Her only care now is to see her niece before she dies.' "'Ah! But that could be arranged,' said Tufik amiably. "'We have at once communicated with France,' McLean told him. "'But we came instantly to you to inform you. "'A thousand thanks, and a thousand. "'The bearers of good tidings,' smiled their host because we understand that there is a question of the young lady's marriage, pursued McLean. And ye would, of course, wish to defer this until these new circumstances are complied with. The pasha stared. Not at all. A fortune is as pleasant to a wife as to a maid. There are so many questions of law, offered McLean with purposeful vagueness. French wardship and trusteeship and all that. It would be advisable, I think, to wait. Absurd, said the pasha easily. Ye would want no doubts cast upon the legality of the marriage, McLean persisted thoughtfully. And since mademoiselle is under age, and the French law has certain restrictions, piff, we are not under French law. At least I have not heard that England has relinquished her power, retorted Tufik, not without malice. But Mademoiselle Delcasse is French, thrust in Ryder. He knew that McLean had ventured as far as he, an official and responsible person, could go, and that the burden of intimation must rest upon himself. And under her father's will, his family there is considered in trusteeship, so there would be certain technicalities that must be considered before any marriage can be arranged, the signature of the French guardian, the settlement of the dot. This inheritance, for instance, all mere formalities, but involving a little delay. Tufik Pasha turned in his chair, and cocked his eyes at this strange young man, who had dropped from the blue with this extensive advice. He looked puzzled. This American fitted into no type of his acquaintance. He was so very young and slim and boyish, with not at all the air of a legal representative. But McLean's position vouched for him. "'You speak for the French family, monsieur?' Unhesitatingly, Ryder declared that he did. Then, you may inform the family, announced Tufik, bristling, that my daughter has been very well cared for, all these years, without advice from France. 
i haven't a doubt of it said ryder quickly but the french law might begin to entertain doubts of it if mademoiselle were married off now without consultation with the authorities already he added a little meaningly as the other shrugged the suggestion away there have been questions raised concerning the mother's marriage and the separation of the little mademoiselle d'alcasse from her relatives in france and now if she were to be married without any legal settlement of her estate steadily he sustained the other's gaze while his unfinished thought seemed to float significantly in the air about them have a cigarette said the pasha hospitably extending a gold case monogrammed with diamonds and emeralds ah coffee he announced welcomely as a little black boy entered with a brass tray of steaming cups i hope gentlemen that you like my coffee it is not the usual turkish brew no this comes from aden the finest coffee in the world a ship captain brings it to me especially beamingly he sipped the scalding stuff then darted back to that suspended sentence but you were saying something of a trusteeship do i understand that it is an aunt of madame delcasse the former madame delcasse who is leaving this money not of madame but of monsieur delcasse mclean informed him ah that accounts but in that case then there need be no concern in france over my daughter's marriage he turned his round eyes from one to the other a moment there is no mademoiselle delcasse sir said ryder sharply there is no mademoiselle delcasse repeated the pasha his eyes frankly enlivened but we have been just speaking you cannot mean to say we have been speaking of my daughter the daughter of the former madame delcasse smilingly he looked upon them a pity that we did not understand each other but you appear to know so much and i supposed that you knew that too that the daughter of monsieur delcasse was dead neither of the young men spoke mclean looked politely attentive ryder's face maintained that look of concentration which guarded the fluctuations of his feelings it was many years ago the pasha murmured putting down his coffee-cup and selecting another cigarette not long after her mother's marriage to me a very charming little girl i was positively attached to her tufik admitted reminiscently well 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 what a pity now said mclean very slowly this will be a great disappointment and so the present mademoiselle is my daughter mclean was silent ryder could hardly trust himself to speak what did she die of he asked at last in a voice whose edged quality brought the pasha's glance to him with a flash of hostility behind its veil but he answered calmly enough of the fever monsieur she was never strong and her grave i should like to make a report it was in the south desert burial i am afraid you must know that the little one was hardly a true believer for our cemetery and you would say that she was only five or six years old ryder persisted the pasha nodded i should like to get as near as possible to the date if it is not too much trouble the father died fifteen years ago and the mother was married to you soon after really monsieur you tufik was frankly restive i know nothing of the father he said sullenly as to the child's death how can one recall after these years in one two years after she came to me one does not grave these things upon the eyeballs 
but you do remember that it was long ago, when your own daughter was very little? Exactly. That is my recollection, monsieur. And I recall, said the pasha, suddenly obliging and sentimental, that even my little one cried for the child. It was afflicting. Assure the family in France of my sympathy in their disappointment. I am very sorry that my news is after all of new interest to you, observed McLean, setting the example for rising. You will pardon my error of information, and accept my appreciation of your courtesy. It is I who am indebted for your trouble, their host assured them, all smiles again. But Ryder was not to be led away without a parting shot. The name of the Delcasse child was Amy. Imperceptibly, Tufik hesitated, then bowed in assent. Odd, said young Ryder thoughtfully, and your own daughter's name also is Amy, two little ones with the same name. With a slight vexed laugh, as one despairing of understanding, the pasha turned to McLean. Your young friend, monsieur, is uninformed that Turkish children have many names. After the loss of the elder, we called the little one by the same name. I trust I have made everything perfectly clear to you. As crystal, said McLean politely. As lightning, said Jack Ryder hotly, striding down the street. It was a flash of invention, that yarn. When I spoke about the question raised by his marriage, the old fox sniffed the wind and was afraid of trouble. He decided on the instant that no future fortune was worth interference with his plans, and he cut the ground from under our feet. Lord, what a lie! Masterly, you must admit. Oh, I admired the beggar, even while I choked on it. But fever, desert burial, two amis, and the sentimental face he pulled. He ought to have had a spotlight in wailing woodwinds. McLean chuckled. I'll believe anything of him now, Ryder rushed on. I'll bet he murdered Delcasse and kidnapped the mother, and now he's selling their daughter. I fancy murder's a bit beyond our Tufik. That's too thick. He's probably telling the truth there. He may never have known Delcasse, and as for the widow, she must have been in no end of trouble with a dead man in a wrecked expedition, and a baby on her hands, and Tufik may have offered himself as a grateful solution to her. You'd be surprised at the things I've heard, and if she looked like her picture, Tufik probably laid himself out to be lovely to her. I rather like the chap myself. I love him, Ryder snorted, the infernal liar. Steady now. Suppose it's all the truth. Nothing impossible to it. Fact is, I'd rather believe it, said McLean imperturbably. It hangs together. If this girl you met thinks she's his daughter, that's conclusive. She'd have some idea, servants' gossip or family whisperings, and why should he have brought her up as his own? No other children. And he'd grown fond of her, of course, if you could see her, retorted Ryder. Just as well, I can't. And I think he could hardly have kept her in the dark. We'd better call it a wild goose chase and say the man's telling the truth. If this girl were his daughter, she couldn't be more than fourteen years old, and I've seen the girl, and she's eighteen if she's a day. You might take her for twenty. Fourteen? said Ryder in repudiating scorn. Hesitatingly, McLean murmured something about the early maturity of the natives. Natives? Ryder flung back angrily. This girl's French. As far as we're concerned, Jack, this girl is Turkish. And fourteen. We can't get around that, and you had better not forget it, his friend quietly advised. We've done everything that we can, and there's no use working yourself up. 
If anybody's to blame in this business, I don't think it's Tufik. He's done the handsome thing by her. But the fool Frenchman who took his baby and his wife into the desert, and it's too late to rag him. Cheer up, old top, and forget it. There's nothing more to be done. It was sound advice. Jack Ryder knew it. They had done all that they could. McLean had been a brick. There remained nothing now but to notify the Delcasse aunt that Tufik Pasha claimed the child. "'And I have a notion, Jack,' said McLean thoughtfully, "'that he might not have done that if he hadn't rushed him so, trying to break off the marriage. That was what frightened him.' "'I thought you said she was his own daughter,' Ryder responded indignantly, and to that McLean merely murmured, "'She will be now, to all time.' It was a haunting thought. It left Ryder with the bitter taste of blame in his mouth, the gall and wormwood of blame and a baffled defeat. But for that sense of blame he might have taken McLean's advice. He might, but for that, have gone the way of wisdom and accepted the inevitable. As it was, he did none of these things. He said to himself that all that he could do now, and the least that he could do, was to let the girl know as much of the story as he knew and draw her own conclusions. Then, if she wanted to go on and sacrifice herself for Tufik, very well. That was none of his affair. But she had a right to the truth, and to the chance of choice. He did not know what he could do, but secretly and defiantly he promised himself that he would do something, and in the back of his mind an idea was already taking shape. It was manifest in the tenacity with which he refused to send the locket to the Delcasses. He had the case and the miniature photographed very carefully by the man who did the reproductions for museum illustrations, and he sent that, conscious of McLean's silent thought that he was cherishing the portrait for a sentimental memory. But he had other plans for it. He did not return to his diggings. He sent a message to the deserted Thatcher, faking errands in Cairo, and he took a room at the hotel where Ginny Jeffries, now up the Nile, had stayed. He spent a great deal of time evenings in the hotel garden, staring over the brick walls to the tops of the distant palms beyond, and not infrequently he slipped out the garden's back door and wandered up and down the dark canyon of a lane. He might as well have walked up and down the veranda of Shepherd's Hotel. And yet the girl had her key. She could get away if she wanted to, and she might want to if she knew the truth. But how to get the truth to her? That was his problem. A dozen plans he considered and rejected. There were the males, simple and obvious channel, but he had a strong idea that maidens in Mohammedan seclusion do not receive their letters directly. And now, especially, Tufik would be on his guard. Then there was the chance of a message through some native's hands. The house-servants? There were hours one day when Ryder sauntered about the streets, covertly eyeing the baggy-trousered Saiz, who stood holding a horse in the sun, or the tattered baker's boy approaching the entrance with his long loaves upon his head. But Ryder's Arabic was not of a power or subtlety to corrupt any creature, and he stayed his tongue. Bitterly he regretted his wasted years. If he had not misspent them in godly living, he would now be upon such terms of intimacy with some official's pretty wife, who had the entree to a pasha's daughter, that she could be induced to make use of it for him. Desperately he thought of remedying this defect. There were several charming young matrons not averse to devoted young men, but the time was short for establishing those confidential relations which were what he required now. Ginny Jeffries would do it for him if she could, but Ginny would not return for another week, 
and if she changed her mind and took the boat back, as he, alack, had advised, instead of the express, then she would be longer. And meanwhile, the days were passing, four of them now, since he and McLean had heard the Sudanese locking the door behind them. There seemed nothing for it but to trust to that idea which had been slowly shaping in his mind. End of chapter 8「to the despair of the kneeling seamstress, her face turned listlessly from the image in the glass. Through the open window, banded with three bars, she looked into the rustling tops of palms, from which the yellow date-fruit hung, and beyond the palms the hot, bright blue sky and the far towers of a minaret. "'A little more to the left, if you please, miss,' the woman entreated through a mouthful of pins, and apathetically the young figure moved. "'A bit of all right now, that drape,' the woman chirped, sitting back on her heels to survey her work. She was an odd, gnome-like figure, with a sharp nose on one side of her head, and an outstanding knob of hair on the other. Into that knob the thin locks were so tightly strained that her pointed features had an effect of popping out of bondage. She was London-born, brought out by an English official's wife as a dressmaker to the children, remaining in Cairo as wife of a British corporal. Since no children had resulted to require her care, and the corporal maintained his distaste for thrift, Mrs. Hendricks had resumed her old trade, and had become a familiar figure to many fashionable Turkish harems, slipping in and out morning and evening, sewing busily away behind the bars upon frocks that would have graced a court ball, and lunching in familiar sociability with the family, sometimes having a bey or a captain or a pasha for a vis-a-vis -vis when the men in the family dropped in for luncheon. As the girl did not turn her head, she looked for approbation to the third person in the room, a tall, severely handsome Frenchwoman in black, whose face had the beauty of chiselled marble and the same quality of cold perfection. This was Madame de Coulvain, teacher of French and literature to the Jean Fille of Cairo, former governess of Amy, returning now to her old room in the palace for the wedding preparations. There was history behind Madame's sculptured face. In an incredibly impulsive youth, she had fled from France with a handsome captain of Algerian dragoons. After a certain matter at cards, he had ceased to be a captain, and became petty official in a Cairo importing house. Later yet, he became an invalid. Life for the Frenchwoman was a matter of paying for her husband's illness, then for his funeral expenses, and then of continuing to pay for the little one which the climate had required them to send to a convent in France. There was, at first, the hope of reunion, extinguished by each added year. What could Madame, unknown, unfriended, unaccredited, accomplish in France? The mere getting there was impossible. The little one required so much. Her daughter was no dependent upon charity, and in Cairo Madame had a clientele. She commanded a price. And so, for the child's sake, she taught and saved, concentrating now upon a dot, and feeding her heart with the dutifully phrased letters arriving each week of the years, 
and the occasional photographs of an ever-growing, unknown young creature. It was to Madame's care that Amy had been given when the motherless girl had grown beyond old Miriam's ministrations. And for nearly nine years in the palace, Madame had maintained her courteous and tactful supervision. Indeed, it was only this last year that Madame had undertaken new relations with the world outside, perceiving that Amy would not longer require her. "'Excellent,' she said now, in her careful, unfamiliar English, to Mrs. Hendricks, and in French to Amy she added, with a hint of asperity, "'Do give her a word. She is trying to please you.' "'It is very nice, Mrs. Hendricks,' said the girl dutifully, bringing her glance back from that far sky. The little seamstress was suddenly all vivacity. "'And now for the sash. Shall we have at it, so, or so?' she demanded, attaching the wisps of tulle experimentally. "'As you wish it, it is very nice,' Amy repeated vaguely. She picked up a bit of the shimmering stuff and spread it curiously across her fingers. A dinner gown. When she wore this, she would be a wife. The wife of Hamdi Bey. A shiver went through her, and she dropped the tool swiftly. In ten days more. Gone was her first rush of sustaining compassion. Gone was her fear for her father and her tenderness to him. Only this numb coldness, this dumb, helpless certainty of a destiny about to be accomplished only this hopeless, useless brooding upon that strange, brief past. There was a stir at the door, and on her shuffling, slippered feet old Miriam entered, handing some packages to Madame de Coulevin. Then she turned to revolve about the bright figure of her young mistress, her eyes glistening fondly, her dark fingers touching a soft fold of silver ribbon, while under her breath she chanted in a croon like a lullaby. Beautiful as the dawn! She will walk upon the heart of her husband with foot of rose petals. She will dazzle him with the beams of her eyes, and with the locks of her hair she will bind him to her, beautiful as the dawn. It was the marriage chant of Miriam's native village, an old love-song that had come down the wind of centuries. Mrs. Hendricks, thrusting in the final pins, paid not the slightest attention, and Madame de Coulevin displayed interest only in the packages. If she saw the stiffening of the girl's face, and the rigid aversion of her eyes from the old nurse's adulation, she gave no sign. Towards Amie's moods, Madame preserved a calm and sensible detachment. Never had she invited confidence, and for all the young girl's charm she had never taken her to her heart in the place of that absent daughter, as if jealously she had held herself aloof from such devotion. Perhaps in Amie's indulged and petted childhood, with a fond pasha extolling her small triumphs, her dances, her score at tennis at the legation, Madame found a bitter contrast to the lot of that lonely child in France. Certainly there was nothing in Amie's life then to invite compassion, and later, during those hard, mutinous months of the girl's first veiling and seclusion, she had not tried to soften the inevitable for her with a useless compassion. So now, perceiving this marriage as one more step in the irresistible march of destiny for her charge, she overlooked the youthful fretting, and offered the example of her own unmoved acceptance. "'What diamonds!' she said now admiringly, holding up a pin and examining the card. "'From Seneha Hanam, the cousin of Hamdi Bey.' A moment more she held up the pin, but the girl would not give it a look. "'And this, from the same jewellers!' continued madame while the dressmaker was unfastening the frock aided by miriam anxious that no scratch should mar that milk-white skin 
How droll! The box is wrapped in cloth, a cloth of plaid. Ami spun about. The dress fell, a glistening circle, at her feet, and with regardless haste she tripped over it to Madame. How strange! she said breathlessly. A plaid, a Scotch plaid, memories of an erect, tartan-draped young figure, of a thin, bronze face and dark hair, where a tilted cap sat rakishly, memories of smiling boyish eyes, darkening with sudden emotion, memories of eager lips. She took the box from Madame. Within the cloth lay a jeweler's case, and within the case a locket of heavily ornamented gold. Her heart beating, she opened it. For a moment she did not understand. Her own face, her own face smiling back, yet unfamiliar, that oddly piled hair, that black velvet ribbon about the throat. Murmuring, Madame shared her wonder. It was Miriam's cry of recognition that told them. "'Thy mother! The grace of Allah upon her! It is thy mother! Eh! Those bright eyes! That long dark hair that I brushed the many hot nights upon the roof!' "'But you are her image, Amie,' murmured the Frenchwoman, but half understanding the nurse's rapid gutturals. And then, your father's gift?' With the box in her hands, the girl turned from them, fearful of the tell-tale color in her cheeks. "'But whose else? His thought, of course,' she stammered. That plaid was warning her of mystery. The dressmaker was creating a diversion. Leaving, she wished to consult about the purchases for tomorrow's work, and Madame moved towards the hall with her, talking in her careful English, while Miriam bent towards the dropped finery. Ami slipped through another door, into the twilight of her bedroom, whose windows upon the street were darkened by those fine-wrought screens of wood. Swiftly she thrust the box from sight, into the hollow in the mashrubier made in old days to hold a water-bottle, where it could be cooled by breezes from the street. Leaning against the woodwork, her fingers curving through the tiny openings, she stared toward the west. The sky was flushing, broken by the circles, the squares, the minute interstices of the mashrubier she saw the city taking on the hues of sunset. Suddenly the cry of a muezzin from a nearby minaret came rising and falling through the streets. La ilahi illallah, Mohammedan, Rasul Allah. The call swelled and died away, and rose again. There is no God but the God, and Mohammed is the prophet of God. From farther towers it sounded, echoing and re-echoing, vibrant, insistent, falling upon crowded streets, penetrating muffling walls. La! Ilahe! Ilala! In the avenue beneath her, two Arabs, leading their camels to market, were removing their shoes and going through the gestures of ceremonial washing with the dust of the street. La! Ilahi! The city was ringing with it. The seamstress and the Frenchwoman, still talking, had passed down the hall. In the next room, Miriam's lips were moving in pious testimony. Ek hidu en la ilahi. I testify that there is no God but the God. In the street, the Arabs were bowing towards the east, their heads touching the earth. And in the window above them, a girl was reading a note. The last call of the musin, falling from the tardy towers of Kayet Bay, drifted faintly through the colored air. With resounding wax, the Arabs were urging on their beast. Miriam, her prayers concluded, was shaking out silks and tulle with a sidelong glance for that still figure in the next room, pressing so close against the guarding screens. She could not see the pallor in the young face. She could not see the tumult in the dark eyes. 
she could not see the note crushed convulsively against the beating breast in the fingers which so few moments ago had drawn it from the hiding-place in the box Ryder had not dared a personal letter but clearly and distinctly he stated the story of the delcasses he gave the facts which the pasha admitted and the ingenious explanation of the two amis and for reference he gave the address of the delcasse aunt and agent in france and of Ryder and mclean at the agricultural bank the pasha did not dine with his daughter that night he had been avoiding her of late a natural reaction from the strain of too excessive gratitude a man cannot be continually humble before the young and it was no pleasure to be reminded by her candid eyes of his late misfortunes and of her absurd reluctance towards matrimony as if this marriage were not the best thing for her as if it were a hardship to make sad eyes and draw a mouth because one is to be the wife of a rich general irrational the little sweetmeat was irritating to this point Tufik's buoyancy had brought him and all the more hastily because of his eagerness to escape the pangs of that uncomfortable self-reproach to Amy, in her new clear-sightedness of misery it was bitterly apparent that he was reconciled with her lot and careless of it so blinded had been her young affection that it was a hard awakening and she was too young too cruelly involved to feel for his easy humours that amused tolerance of larger acquaintance with human nature she had grown swiftly bitter and resentful and deeply cold and now this letter it dazed her like a flame of lightning before her eyes and then like lightning it lit up the world with terrifying luridity fiery coloured unfamiliar her life trembled about her truth or lies custom and habit stirred incredulously to reflect the supposition the romance the adventure of youth dared its swift acceptance how could she know intuitively she shrank from any question to the pasha realizing the folly and futility of exposing her suspicion if he needed to lie lie he would and in her understanding of that she read her own acceptance of the possibility of his needing to lie madame de Coulevin? madame had never known her mother only old miriam had known her mother and miriam was the pasha's slave but the old woman was unsuspecting now and full of disarming comfort in this marriage of her wild darling through dinner she planned the careless seeming questions and then in her negligee as the old nurse brushed out her hair for the night daddy said the girl in a faint voice am i truly like my mother and when miriam had finished her fond protestation that they were as like as two roses as two white roses bloom and bud she launched that little cunning phrase on which she had spent such eager hoping and was i like her when i was little when first she came to my father eh, yes always thou wast the tiny image which allah glory to his name had made of her came the nurse's assurance i am glad said amy in a trembling voice she dared not press that more confronted with her unconscious admission the old woman would destroy it feigning some evasion but there it was for as much as it was worth presently then she found another question to slip into the old woman's narrative of the pasha's grief eh to hear a man weep miriam was murmuring her beauty had set its spell upon him and and he lost her so soon three or four years only was it not ventured amy that they had of life together it seemed that miriam's brush missed a stroke years i forget the nurse muttered but tears i remember 
and she began to talk of other things. But it seemed to Amy that she had answered. As for that other matter, of the dead Delcasse child, she dared not refer to it, lest Miriam tell the Pasha. But how many times, she remembered, had she been told that she was her mother's only one? Yet, oh, to know, to hear all the story, to learn Ryder's discovery of it, it was all as strange and startling as a tale of jinns. And the life it held out to her, the enchanted hope of freedom, of aid, oh, not again would she refuse his aid. She had no plans, no purposes. But that night, over her hastily donned frock, she slipped the black street mantle, and when at last, after endless waiting, the murmuring old palace was safely still and dark, she stole down the spiral stair and gained the garden. And then, a phantom among its shadows, she fled to the rose-bushes by the gate. Breathlessly she knelt and dug into the hiding-place of that gate's key. To the furthest corner her fingers explored the hull, pushing furiously against the earth, and then she drew back her hand and crushed it against her face to check the nervous sobs. The hole was empty. The key was gone. End of chapter 9「Ten of the Fortieth Door This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley Chapter Ten: The Reception In Tufik Pasha's harem everything was astir. It was the morning of the marriage, almost the very hour when the wedding cortege would bear the bride from her father's home to the house of her husband. The invited guests were already arrived, and streaming through the reception-rooms, a bright feminine tide in evening toilettes, surrounding the exhibited gifts, or pausing about tables of cool syrups, and their soft, low voices, the delicious musical tones of high-bred Turkish women, rose like a murmuring of somnolent bees to the tenser regions about, tightening the excitement of haste. The bride was not yet ready. Still and white, she was the only image of calm in that fluttering, confusing room. Her nearer friends were hovering about her, and her maids of honour, two charming little Turks in rose robes, were draping her veil, while old Miriam, resplendent in green and silver, endeavoured jealously to outmanoeuvre them. On her knees, the gnome-like Mrs. Hendricks was adding an orange blossom to the laces on the train. Then she sat back on her heels, her head a-tilt like a curious bird's, her eyes beaming sentimentally upon the bride. "'The prettiest I ever did see,' she pronounced with satisfaction, "'as pretty as a wax figure now, only a thought too waxy.' And like a wax figure, indeed, immobile, rigid, the bride was standing before them, arrayed at last in the shimmering white of the sweeping satin, over-rich of lace and orange flowers, and shrouded in the clouding waves of her veil. White as her robes, pale as death and as still, the girl looked out at them, and only that sick pallor of her face and the glitter of her dark eyes betrayed the tumult within. "'Your diadem, my dear, you are keeping us attending,' came Madame de Coulevin's voice from the door. The diadem, that heavy circlet of brilliance which crowned the eastern bride in place of the orange wreath of western convention, must not be touched by the bride's fingers, but placed by one of her friends, married and married but once, and exceptionally happy in that marriage. Gula Din, Amie's selection from her friends, stepped hastily forward now, 
a soft, dimpled, slow-smiling girl, her eyes drowsy with domesticity. No question of Gul Adin's happiness. She extolled her husband, a young captain of cavalry, and she adored her infant son, a prodigy among children. Life for her was a rosy, unquestioning absorption. A shaft of irony sped through Emmy as she bent her head for its crowning at this young wife's hands, and received the ceremonial wishes for her crowning of happiness, a crowning occurring but once in her lifetime. Irony was the only salvation for the hour. Without that outlet for her tortured spirit, she felt she would grow suddenly mad, hysterical, and babbling, or passionate and wild. So many moods had stormed through her since that night, when she had found all hope of rescue gone with her lost key. So many impulses seethed frantically now beneath her quiet, as she faced for the last time that white-misted image in the glass. She had a furious longing to tear off that diadem and veil and heavy robe, to scatter the ornaments and drive out all those maddening spectators, all those interested, eager, unknowing, uncaring spectators of her humiliation. Arranging her veil, draping her satins, as if gauze and silk were all that mattered to this hour, wishing her happiness as if happiness could ever be hers now for the wishing, smiling, fluttering, complimenting, lending to the ghastly sacrifice the familiar acceptances of every day. If only she could wake from this nightmare and find that it was all a dream. If only she could brush this confusion from her senses and from her heart its dumb terrors. If only she had the courage for some desperate revolt, some outburst of strength. I am ready she said faintly, turning from the glass, and moved towards the door, while a young eunuch bent for her train, that train of three yards' length, which stretched so regally behind her in her slow descent of the stairs. In the French drawing-room below her father was waiting for the ceremonial farewell, in which the father received the daughter's thanks for all his care of her. Mechanically Emmy advanced. She stood before him, she lifted her eyes, and there passed from them a look of such strange, breathless, questioning intensity that it was like something palpable. She had not foreseen this sudden crisping of her nerves, this defiant passion of her spirit. Her father? Was he her father? Was it a father who had sold her so careless, callous? Or was it only a father's semblance? And did there lie in the background of those petted, childish years some darker shadow of a tragedy that had wrecked her mother's life and broken her heart? like a flashing light that looked past between them. It penetrated Tufik's nonchalant guard and brought the unaccustomed color to his olive cheeks. His handsome eyes turned uneasily aside. A girl's pique, perhaps, at the situation, her last defiance of his power. But for all his reassurance there was something deeper in that look, something tenable, accusing, which went into his soul. It was a moment in which the last chord of their relationship was severed forever. She did not speak a word. She bent, not to kiss his hand as custom dictated, but to sweep a long, slow curtsy, that salutation of a maid of spirit to a conqueror, a bending of the pliant back, but with the head held high and the spirit unsurrendered. And yet there was a wretchedness in those proud eyes and a blind fear and supplication. Useless to beg now, she knew it, and yet the eyes implored. And then she smiled, and before that smile, Tufik faltered in his paternal benediction and hastened the phrases. Little murmurs flew back and forth as she turned away, and then a hasty chatter sprang up as the guests hurried into their charchefs for the journey to the bridegroom's house. That day Emmy did not put on her veil. 
On either side of her, as she went out her father's gate, huge negroes held up silken walls of damask, and between those walls she walked into the carriage that awaited her, followed by Madame de Coulvain and the two little maids of honour. It was when the carriage began to move that the panic inside of her grew to a whirlwind. The horse's hoofs, trotting, trotting, the motion of the wheels, seemed to be the onbearing rush of fate itself. If she could only stop it! If she could only cry out, tear open the windows, scream to the passers-by! She knew these were only the impotent visions of hysteria, but she indulged them pitifully. She saw herself, in those moments, helpless and hopeless, passing on into the slavery of this marriage. Amy, no longer the daughter of Tufik Pasha, but Amy Delcasse, child of a dead Frenchman, inheritor of freedom, sold like any dancing girl. And her own lips had assented. In the supreme, silly uselessness of sacrifice, she had given herself for the safety of that man who had spent such careless indulgence upon her, that man whom perhaps her mother had loved, and perhaps had hated. Faster and faster the horses were trotting, leading the long file of carriages and impatient motors that bore the relatives and guests and trousseau, rolling on under the libecks and sycamores of the wide Shubra Avenue, once the delight of fashionables before the Gazira Drive had drained it of its throngs and its prestige. Now some bright-eyed urchins ran out from their games in the dust to curious attention, and through a half-moon gate Emmy caught once a glimpse of a young unveiled girl watching eagerly from the tangled greens and ruined statuary of an old garden. Farther on came glimpses of farmlands, the wheat rising in bright spears, and of well-wooded heights, and in the distance the white houses of Demardac against the Gibil Akmar beyond. But where were they bearing her? Amy had a despairing sense of distance and desolation as the carriage turned again. Abdullah, the coachman, having traversed unnecessary miles to gratify his pride before the house of his parents, and made a zigzag way towards the river where old palaces rose from the backwaters, their faces hidden by high walls or covered with heavy vines and moss. Deeper and deeper grew the girl's dismay. It was a different world from that bright modern Cairo that she knew. This was as remote from her daily life as the old streets of Al-Rashid. Her thoughts flew forward to that unknown lord, that Hamdi Bey, whose image she had refused to assemble to her consciousness. Now she comforted her terror with a sudden assumption of age and dignity and kindness, of a courtesy that would protect her, and a deference that would assuage the horror of a life together, when unknown, fearful familiarities would alone vibrate in the empty monotonies. Before a high wall the carriage had stopped. A huge, repellent Ethiopian was standing before an open doorway, through which a rich carpet was spread. "'Ah, but he looks like an ogre, that new eunuch of yours, Amy,' murmured one of the little Turks. The other, more touched with thought, gave her a disturbed glance, and laughed in nervousness. Madame, alone serene, ignored the dismaying impression. "'The palace is of a fine ancient beauty, I am told,' she mentioned cheerfully. For one wild instant Amy thought to plead with her, to implore her to tell Abdullah to drive on, to give her the freedom of flight, if only flight down those deserted streets. And then a mad vision of herself in her bridal robes in flight brought the hysterical laughter to her throat. The time for flight had gone by, and as for Madame's pity on her, this was not the first time that Amy had thought of invoking her aid, but she had always known, too well, that thought's supreme futility. Sympathetic as Madame de Coulvain might be in her inmost heart, 
and Amy divined in her an understanding pity for the necessities of existence, never would sympathy betray her to rashness. She would never believe that in serving Amy she would not be ruining her, and even if assured of Amy's safety, she could never be brought to betray her own reputation for trustworthiness among the harems of Cairo, as well appeal to the rocks of the Macadam Hills. The carriage stopped. The negroes extended the damask walls, and one sprang to open the carriage door and bear the bride's train. In one moment's parting of the silken walls, the girl saw a sun-flooded cluster of staring faces, thronging for her arrival, and then the damask intervened, and through its lane, followed by her duenna and her maids of honour, she entered the arched doorway. She was in a garden, a great gloomy place, overspread with ancient moss-encrusted trees. A broken marble fountain flung up waters into which no sunlight flashed, and the heavy stepping-stones leading to it were buried in untrodden grass, a garden in which no one lingered. The Ethiopian was marshalling them to the left, to an entrance in the dark palace walls before them. Behind them the oncoming guests were streaming out in a veiled procession. He opened a door. Ancient, beautiful arches framed a long vestibule, and against a background of profuse cut flowers a man's figure stepped forward in the glittering uniform of the Sultan's guard. Amy had a confused impression of a thin, meagre, dandified figure with a waspish waist, of a blonde moustache with upstanding ends, of sallow cheekbones and small, light eyes smiling at her in a strained, eager curiosity. Through all her sinking dismay she had a flash of clear, enlightening irony at that look's suspense. If she were not as represented, if his cousin's fervour had misled his hope— but in that instant's encounter his eyes cleared to triumph and gaiety, and he smiled, a smile curiously feline, ironic for all its intended ingratiation, a conqueror's smile, winged to assure and melt. He stepped forward. There were formal words of welcome to which she returned a speechless bow, and then he offered his arm and conducted her slowly up the stairs, his sword rattling in its scabbard to the apartment which was to be her home, and the prison for the spirit and the body. She knew in a moment that she hated this man, and that he inspired her with fear and horror. Across a long expanse of drawing-room he conducted her to the ancient marriage throne upon its platform, surmounted by a pompous crown from which old embroidered silks hung heavily. Then, with an unheard phrase and another bow, he left her to the day-long ordeal of the reception, while he withdrew to his own entertainment at her father's house. She would not see him again until night, when he would pay her a call of ceremony. She saw his figure hesitating a moment, as he faced the oncoming guests, such a flood of femininity, unmantled now and unveiled, sparkling in rainbow hues of silks and tulle and gauze, that he had never before faced and never would again. Like a bright wave the throng closed about him and then surged on towards the bride upon the throne. How often in these last years Amy had pitied that poor puppet of a bride, stuck there like some impaled winged creature, helpless for flight, to the exhibition of the long stream of passers-by. How often she had promised herself that never would this be her fate, never would she be given to an unknown, and now— She was smiling as she faced them, that light, fixed smile she had seen so often on others' lips, the smile of pride trying desperately to hide its wounds from the penetrating glances of the curious satirical cynical or sympathetic that light smile defied them all but beneath its guard she felt she was slowly bleeding to death of some mortal hurt 
The sympathy unconsciously betrayed was hardest. The whispers of her young maids of honour, "'Really, Amy, he looks so young. One would never surmise,' were more galling in their intended consolation, more revealing in their betrayal of her friend's own shrinking from that arrogant, dandified old man than the barbed dart of the uncaring, inquisitive, "'How do you find him, my dear? He has the reputation for conquest.' They were all there, her friends, young, slim, modish Turkish girls, whose time had not yet come, glancing quizzically about the ancient drawing-room, with its solid side of mashrubier, its old wall panellings of carvings and rare inlay, and then pointing their glances back at her, as if to ask, "'And this is our revoltee? Is this her end, in this dim old palace, among the ghosts of the past?' Some, the frankest, murmured, "'But why did you not refuse?' and others attempted consolation with a light, as well the first as the last, since we must all come to it. Of the married women there were those who raised blank bitter eyes to her, and others, more mild, romantic, affectionate, tried to infuse encouragement into their smiles, as if they said, Come, courage, it's not so bad. And what would you? We are women, after all. We do not need so much for happiness." those dreams of yours for love for a spirit to delight in your spirit in place of a master delighting in your beauty alone what are they those dreams but the childless stuff of fancies for other races perhaps but for you take hold of life there are realities yet in it to bring you joy it was all in their eyes their voices their intonations their pressure of her hands and she stood there among them all smiling always that smile demanded of the bride looking unseeingly into their eyes, listening unhearingly to the sea of voices breaking on her ears, responding in vague monosyllables and a wider smile, while all the time her eyes saw only that face, that smirking, cynical old face, and the tide of terror rose higher and higher in her soul. Never had she given way to her fear, never since the black night when she found the key was gone. Then, after frenzied searching in impossible places, she had stolen back to her room, and buried her face in her pillow to stifle the breaking sobs of rebellion and despair, and of a longing so deep and so terrible that it seemed to rend her with a physical anguish, a pain so fiery that her heart would forever bear the scar. Never again would she see him now. Never would she know. Never would she know all. She had refused his aid, and he might believe her still aloof, incredulous. It was finished, for ever and ever. She had told herself that before, but always there had been the key, and now there was no key, and no escape, and her heart broke itself against the iron of necessity. She had cried the night through. Morning had brought her exhaustion, not peace, but a despairing submission. Why struggle when the prison gate is shut, and if there was never to be freedom for her, never again the sight of that too-remembered face, and the sound of that voice, why then, as well one fate as another? and it was too late now to recede. So she had called upon her pride, and summoned her spirit to play its part to protect her from whispers, and surmise, and half-contemptuous pity. She would surrender to this man, because she must, and she would win his respect by her dignity and worth. But her soul she would keep its own, in its unsullied dreams, and in its memories. Life would be nothing but a hardship, nobly born. But now she had seen the man, now this wild dislike, this sickening terror. To be alone with him, to have only the few days' grace of courtship which the Mohammedan custom imposes upon the bridegroom, to be forever at his mercy in this solitary palace, 
with its echoing corridors, its blackened walla, its damp breath of age. She thought wildly of death. And all the time she was smiling, bending her cheek to the kiss of a friend, feeling the fingers of some well-wisher press upon her, listening to praises of her beauty. For she was beautiful, no image of wax now. The scarlet of her frightened blood was staining her cheeks. Her eyes were bright as the jewels in her diadem, and beneath the thrown-back veil her dark hair revealed its lovely wealth. "'Is she not a rose? Will he not adore her, our Hamdi?' she heard that stout cousin of Hamdi say to a companion, and the two stared on appraisingly at the young girl, in her freshness and virginal youth, as if at some toy to invite the jaded appetite of a satiated master. And still the throng filed by, a strange throng beneath the flickering light and shadow of the mashrubier, slender young Turks or blonde Circassians in their Paris frocks, their eyes tormented or malicious, and here and there, like a green island of calm, some rotund matron grave and serene, her head encircled with an old-fashioned turban of gauze, her stout flesh encased in heavy silks, bought at Damask so as not to enrich the unbelievers at Lyon. And then the spectacle changed, the black street mantles appeared, yasmaks and charchefs, for now the doors were opened to all the feminine world, and there came strange, unknown women, slipping out from their grills for this pleasuring in a palace. Old-timers often, draped and turbaned in the fashion of some far province of their youth, women incredibly fat, in rich stuffs of Asia, their bright, deep-sunken eyes spying delightedly upon the scene, or furtive, poor women, keeping courage in twos and threes. Now, too, at four, came the women from the embassies. A Russian girl, with whom Amy had played tennis in ages past, rosy now with yesterday's sun, and sleepy with last night's dance, who touched the bride's hand as if it were the hand of one half-dead, already consigned to the tomb. Other girls she did not know, who stared at her with the avid eyes of their young curiosities, older women, experienced, unstirred, drinking their tea and smoking cigarettes, and gossiping of their own affairs, and occasionally among them a tourist agog with wonder and exultation, storing away details for a lifetime of talk, asking amiably the most incredible questions. "'And is it true you have never met your husband? Listen, Jane, she says she has never met him.' A girl in a creamy white silk came forward a little uncertainly. She was a pretty girl, with a curve of ruddy hair visible under her smart straw, and very bright eyes, where shyness was at variance with a friendly smile. Indeed, Jinny Jeffreys was extraordinarily intimidated by the occasion. She had a distinct sense of intrusion, mingling with her delight at having intruded, and she murmured her good wishes in an almost inaudible tone. "'It is very good of you to let us come. I wish you every happiness,' she said. Beside her a tall, slender figure, and a black charchaf and yasmuk made its appearance. Amie's eyes slipped past the pretty American. The mechanical smile was frozen on her lips. Over the black veil she saw the hazel eyes, bright with excitement, vivid as speech, the eyes of the masquerader in the Scotch costume, the eyes of the man at the garden gate, Jack Ryder's eyes, the eyes of her dreams. End of chapter 10「Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for 129 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for 249 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.